Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, The Two Witnesses. All right, well, around A.D. 95, you know if you've been with us that the Apostle John, incarcerated on the island of Patmos, is suddenly taken up spiritually into heaven, and he's given a series of amazing visions. Okay, these visions come or came to him in A.D. 95, one after another after another, and they were all about the end of the world. John faithfully wrote down these visions a little later, and they've been preserved for us until this very day. The book of Revelation, one of the most fascinating books in the entire Bible, and by the way, in chapters 6 through 19, there's the narrative for the last seven years of history as we know it, we call it the tribulation period. Okay, so right right now, we're right in the middle of that, we're in chapter 11, and so in our chapter today, John has yet another vision. This time he has a vision of two godly men. And so the two witnesses, that's what we call them, will come at some point in the future. We don't know the day or the hour, but they will come on the scene. They'll prophesy, preach for 1,260 days. What is their message? Well, the, the main theme of their message is that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and Jesus is the Savior of all. And so today we pick it up now in verse 1 before we get to the two witnesses in verses 3 and following. We're going to spend a good chunk of time in verses 1 and 2, and I'm going to tell you about something that's got to happen before the second coming of Jesus. Okay? So look at chapter 11 verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, "Rise and measure the What's the next three words? Temple of God. Wow. And the altar. And those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. That's the Gentile nations. And they will trample the holy city, that's Jerusalem, for how long? 42 months, that's three and a half years. Okay, and so again, John snatched up into heaven. He has a series of visions about the end of the world. Now here's his next vision. In the next vision, he sees the Jewish temple. Now I said wow, because this is a wow moment. He sees the temple, and it's AD 95, and it's 25 years after the temple had been destroyed. For those of you who don't know, In AD 70, in response to a Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire, Titus, the Roman general and the Roman army, surrounded Jerusalem and did a full-on assault against the Jews. They camped around the city. They actually broke through the walls eventually. They slaughtered tens of thousands of Jews, and they burnt the Jewish temple to the ground. Okay, and so the Jews who survived that onslaught, those who survived, later on were kicked out of their homeland, and Israel ceased to be a nation. Okay, and so when you think about all this prophetically speaking, 
John sees the temple in his vision of the last days, but what you need to know right now is that there hasn't been a temple since A.D. 70. A.D. 70, temple burnt to the ground. A little later, Jews kicked out of their home, and the nation of Israel ceases to exist. But good news. In May of 1948, by the sovereign providence of God after World War II, what happened? The Jews came back to their land, and the modern state of Israel was reestablished. Ladies and gentlemen, that had to happen before the second coming of Jesus Christ. That had to happen before anything in the book of Revelation could ever been fulfilled as far as chapters 6 and following. That had to happen. The Jews had to come back to their land. Israel had to once again become a nation. But there's something else that has to happen before the second coming of Christ. If you're taking notes, here it is. The Jewish temple must be rebuilt. The Jewish temple must be rebuilt. Now, people say, well, how do you know that the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt? Here's my answer. Because God said so. That's why. Not once, not twice, not three times, five times at least in the Bible. God says the temple will be there in the tribulation period. Gabriel told Daniel that in Daniel 9.27. By the way, that is one of the key prophetic verses in the entire Bible. Okay, so in the, so in the, in the end days, there is a temple. Gabriel tells Daniel that in Daniel 9.27. Later on, the book of Daniel reiterates that in chapter 12, 11, there's a temple. Jesus, in Matthew 24, 15, talking about the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of history as we know it, he talks about how there's a Jewish temple in Matthew 24, 15. Paul, later on in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, we'll look at that verse later, but he, talking about the abomination which causes desolation, talks about the rebuilt temple. And not only that, but John, here in our chapter today, sees in his end times vision a Jewish temple. And so, there's lots of Orthodox Jews today that would love to see their temple rebuilt. But we all know that based upon the current climate in the Middle East, let's just say it's not very conducive for that to happen. If anybody tried to rebuild a Jewish temple right now on the Jewish by the way, the, the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is the very spot. We know that for a fact. Secular and religious people know this for a, set, a fact, that the Temple Mount is the spot where the Jewish temple used to exist. So if anybody tried to rebuild a Jewish temple today, all-out war would consume the Middle East. And yet John sees the temple in his vision, so we know that it's going to be rebuilt someday. Now look at verse 1 again. He says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, most likely the brazen altar, and those who worship there. Now, in obedience to the voice, John begins to measure the temple. If the rebuilt temple is going to resemble the second Jewish temple, then it's going to look something like this. So I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, John walking around with a reed, probably taken from the Jordan River Valley, and he's measuring the temple. He's not measuring the outer court because verse two says, don't do that. 
That's been given over to the Gentile nations. Rather, he's measuring the brazen altar. He's measuring the holy place. He's measuring the holy of holies. He's counting the number of Jews that are there in the last days worshiping the Lord. He's doing all of that. Why? Because measurement means ownership. Measurement means ownership. Ladies and gentlemen, there is one God. We are monotheists. We are not polytheists. There is one God and one God only. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the great I am. He is the one that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. That's God. There is no other gods. And you need to understand that that God owned the first Jewish temple that Solomon built, later on destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. God owned that temple that was his temple. God owned the second temple that Zerubbabel built, later on enhanced and refurbished by Herod the Great, the temple that Jesus went to in his lifetime, destroyed later in history, A.D. 70, by the Romans. God owned that temple. And in the same way God owned the first temple and the second temple, he is also going to own someday the third temple, the rebuilt temple on the Jewish mount in Jerusalem. You say, how do you know? Because verse 1 says it's the temple of God. It's his temple. And so John is measuring what belongs to the Lord. And you might say, well, how in the world can a Jewish temple be built on the Temple Mount when Islam's Dome of the Rock sits there right now? And I'd say that's a great question. We try to go to Israel every two years. I love it, I love it, I love it. I hope you can go with us in two years, May of 2019. If you start saving now, you can go with us. But this was last March. We were there in my favorite place, the Temple Mount. It's not my favorite place because the Dome of the Rock is there. Uh, some people say, well, why aren't you smiling? Okay, well, if you in the future at the same exact spot take a picture of me in my resurrected body with the rebuilt millennial temple behind me and Jesus Christ reigning for a thousand years, then I'll be grinning ear to ear. Okay, but in March we were there and we were at the Dome of the Rock. If you ever go with us to Israel, we go to a lot of different places in the north and in the south and they don't always let us go up here, but they'll, they'll let us go to the Temple Mount. I'm, I'm kind of an alien. I don't get emotional very often. The first time I went to the Temple Mount, I, I started to cry because of all the history right there. I think it's 37 acres. By the way, there's, Herod built four retaining walls on the top of Mount Moriah, boxing it in for the Temple Mount, Zerubbabel's temple that he refurbished and enhanced the temple of Jesus' day, and that western retaining wall is called the Wailing Wall. Do you ever see the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jews praying at the wall? That's, those stones, the bottom there, are from the time of Herod the Great. And they're praying for their, their temple someday to be rebuilt. But right now, there's the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is called the Dome of the Rock because Muslims believe that Muhammad ascended into heaven from the very rock that is enshrined in that big gold dome. 
Jerusalem is the third most sacred city as far as Islam is concerned. The first most sacred city in Islam is Mecca, because that's where Muhammad was born. The second most sacred city is Medina. The third most sacred city is Jerusalem because of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is just south of the dome. And so once again, the question is, how will the temple be rebuilt, the Jewish temple, when the Dome of the Rock is sitting up there on the Temple Mount? Okay, here is one of many theories. Everybody please say theories. Okay, I'm not teaching the Bible right now, I'm just giving you a theory. I always wanna distinguish between those two. Some believe that before AD 70, the Jewish temple did not sit exactly where the Dome of the Rock sits today. Dome of the Rock was completed in AD 691. But before AD 70, before the Jewish temple was, was burnt down, a lot of people believe that it wasn't right there where the Dome of the Rock is, but just to the north, a little over 100 yards to the north. The Temple Mount's huge. And so the theory is that one day when the climate in the Middle East changes and who, who knows what's gonna happen, we got some ideas about how that could change, but when it becomes conducive for the rebuilding of the temple, many believe that the Jewish temple will be, re, will be rebuilt just north of the Dome of the Rock. So they won't tear down the Dome of the Rock, which would cause all-out warfare, but that both structures will exist side by side. Is that why John is told not to measure, in verse 2, the court outside the temple, but leave that out, for it is given over to the Gentile nations? We don't know. But here's what we know for sure, that many Orthodox Jews right now believe, that are living today, they believe that when their Messiah comes, he will help them rebuild their temple. The problem is, in the first half of the tribulation period, the man that many Jews accept as their Messiah is not the Messiah at all. Jesus talked about this in John. Check it out. Jesus said to the Jews of his day, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Now stop right there. If you're brand, brand new to the Bible or religion, you gotta understand that the vast majority of Jewish people around the world do not accept Jesus as their Messiah. Many do. Messianic Jews all over the world and in Jerusalem do. But most don't. And they didn't in Jesus' day. And so Jesus says to these guys, point blank, eyeball to eyeball, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And so Jesus inferred that the Jews in the future would receive somebody else as their Messiah, an imposter Messiah. Who will that imposter be? The Antichrist. And so this is the scenario that could play out in the future. We know 100% for sure, according to Daniel, there's that verse again, 927, that the Antichrist will bring Israel and her neighbors together to sign a seven-year treaty. Most scholars believe it's a peace treaty. The language in Daniel 9.27 is that he will make a strong covenant for one week. The word week in Hebrew is Shavuot. It's not a week of days, it's a week of years. It's seven years. That's where we get this whole thing I keep saying over and over, the seven-year tribulation period. That comes from Daniel 9.27. Okay, and so the Antichrist will come 
and he will sign a peace treaty, get Israel and her neighbors to sign a treaty for seven years. Okay, that will happen. The theory is that part of that treaty will be an agreement to allow the ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox Jews to go ahead and rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount, not by destroying the Dome of the Rock, but building it right next to the Dome of the Rock. And what a statement that would be to the world that two major religions can, listen to this word, coexist. Ever seen the bumper sticker? can coexist together in peace. Religious toleration. And so, is that theory gonna happen? Well, there's lots of other theories that hold a lot of good weight as well. We're not sure um, how it's all gonna go down, but we do know that the temple will be rebuilt, and we do know that the Antichrist will sign that seven-year uh, seven uh, peace treaty. Now. He will come, according to what we studied earlier, as the first horseman of the apocalypse. He's on a white horse. He's imitating Jesus. He's got a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. That means he's a peacemaker. And he comes on the world scene, and he's, he's just bringing global peace. He's signing the peace treaty in the Middle East. He's accomplishing what nobody's ever been able to accomplish in so many years. He's bringing peace between the Jews and her Arab neighbors. And the world's applauding him. But you need to know that the Antichrist will not only be a great peacemaker, he will be a great fraud. Because of what he does halfway through the covenant, the treaty that he signs. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, after John is told not to measure the outer court, it says, and they, that's the Gentile nations, will trample Jerusalem, that's the holy city, for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Okay, everybody, please look at me. They signed the treaty, strong covenant, for seven years. Religious tolerism is the word of the day. Okay, but then three and a half years, something happens that sets off the Antichrist, makes, it, makes his head explode, and the next thing you know, he is breaking the peace treaty and he is committing what Jesus called the abomination which causes desolation. Paul wrote about this in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He, the Antichrist, this is the future, opposes and exalts who? Himself. The guy's an egomaniac. Against every so-called God or object of worship. In other words, at the halfway point of the tribulation, all religions are illegal. So he, the Antichrist, takes his seat in the what? The temple of God. There it is again. It's rebuilt. Proclaiming himself to be God. This guy walks, struts into the rebuilt temple. He takes a statue of himself, an image of himself, and he sets it up in the temple. That is the abomination which causes desolation, according to Jesus in Matthew 24, 15. This guy sits in the temple. It says that he cusses out the one and only God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He declares that I am God. He makes all religions illegal, and everybody's got to worship him. We'll find out in chapter 13 that his Cohort and crime will do miracles. He's called the false prophet. 
deceiving the world so that everybody worships the image of the beast. That's coming in Revelation chapter 13. It's gonna happen in the future, and so it's gonna happen during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, 42 months. By the way, when this guy cusses out God, Revelation 13, five says he only has 42 months left, three and a half years, the exact amount of time at the end of verse two that the Gentile nations will trample upon the city of Jerusalem. I know I spent a lot of time on verses one and two, but I thought it's really important to educate you guys on that because here's what I know. Most churches in America, most Christians in America have this much idea or this much understanding of what I just taught you the last 15 minutes. You know why? Because their pastors are not teaching the Bible. And so it's important for us to understand how it all ends. It's why the book is in our Bibles. Not so we can ignore it, but so that we can read it and heed it so that we can receive the blessing that's promised in it in chapter one. All right, now we get to the two witnesses. Look at verse three. And I will grant authority, God says, to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's 42 months, that's three and a half years. And they're clothed in what? Sackcloth, that means these guys are mourning. Why? Because of the sorry condition of the world, that's why. All the sin and depravity. Verse four, these are the two olive trees. Everybody knows that one of the functions of olive trees is to get olive oil to put into lamps in the ancient days in order to light up a room. And so these guys are anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit power of the Holy Spirit. And they're also called the two lampstands. Because they're empowered with the oil of the Holy Spirit, they are shining brightly for God in their generation. Hey, quick side note. Christian, you will never live for God apart from the empowerment, the oil, the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life. You will never live for God apart from that. You think you can try harder. You think you can pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and by sheer willpower, you can live according to the Ten Commandments and obey God. I'll give you until next Sunday and you'll fall right on your face. You can't. I can't. Jesus went up so the Holy Spirit can come down and empower us to live a life that honors the Lord. That's the truth. Jesus went up so the Holy Spirit can, can anoint us with his oil so that we can shine brightly for the Lord. It's the only way we'll ever live for God. And so these two guys, man, these guys are anointed. They're shining and they're standing before the Lord of the earth. And so throughout history, God has anointed faithful men and women with the oil of his Holy Spirit, the power of his Holy Spirit, fresh oil. And they have shine brightly for the Lord in their generation. In the Old Testament, guys like you know, Isaiah and Daniel and Moses and Elijah and the New Testament, Peter, James, John and Paul in church history, guys like, like um, um, Martin Luther had his faults, but man, that guy was anointed. And he brought reform where reform was needed in the church. George Whitfield, Spurgeon, Moody, Wesley, 
these guys, and, and, and these guys were anointed and they were shining and in the same way, these two men will be anointed and shining in the last seven years. I believe they're gonna preach during the first half of the tribulation period. It says 1,260 days. Some really good scholars believe that they're gonna preach the second half of the tribulation. I don't take that position. I think it's the first half because in a little while we're gonna see that when they die, everybody's exchanging gifts and rejoicing. And I can't imagine anybody exchanging gifts and rejoicing at the end of the tribulation when all hell is breaking loose and the seven bowls of wrath are being poured out and everything's going crazy. No, I, I really feel like they preach the first half, so the, the treaty is signed by the Antichrist, Israel and her neighbors. These guys are preaching for 1,260 days. The Antichrist comes and kills them. He declares he's God. And then 42 months left, and Jesus is coming back. Is this making sense to you guys? Okay. And so their ministry lasts for three and a half years. Who will they be? Some people believe Moses and Elijah. Because some of the things that they do is very Moses-like, like turning water into blood. Some people believe Elijah and Enoch, because Elijah, taken up into heaven on a chariot, never died. Enoch walked with God, he was not, for God took him, he never died, so that's why some people believe it's Elijah and Enoch. Other people say, no, it's just two Jews who received Jesus as their Messiah, beginning of the tribulation, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit, shining brightly for their generation, and God just use, uses these two Jewish men. I personally am under the conviction, I'll, I'll go far as far to say it's a conviction, that at least one of these guys is Elijah. And the reason I say that is because of the closing promise of the Old Testament. It says, behold, I will send you who? Right there. Now, how many of you guys believe that the Bible is God's word? Okay, so that's a promise from God. I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, we all know John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, kind of like allegorically as Elijah. But this is saying that Elijah's coming back himself in the flesh. And so he's gonna come, and Elijah, by the way, if you've never read the Old Testament, this guy had a powerful ministry in the 19th century B.C., and God supernaturally protected Elijah in the same way during the last, um, the, the, the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. God is going to supernaturally protect these two witnesses. No one's gonna be able to harm these guys. Look at verse five. It says that if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And so during the, the, the uh, tribulation period, the world is gonna hear the Bible preaching and teaching of these two men from Jerusalem. And guess what? The world's gonna hate them. Do you know why a lot of people in the world would never step into an evangelical church that teaches the Bible? Do you know why they won't come in here, many of them? It's not because they haven't been invited. It's not even because some of their friends and neighbors are 
good Christians and they can see their example. No, they don't want to come in here because they know if they come in here, the Holy Spirit of God is going to take the word of God and convict their hearts of their sin. And people don't like to be convicted of their sin. And these guys, these two witnesses, are going to be preaching under the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God, God's word, for three and a half years. And the world's opinion is they're just two intolerant bigots saying Jesus is the only way to heaven, saying we need to repent, saying we need to stop doing what we're, we'll do whatever we want to do. Somebody shut them up, right? And so what we're going to find out is that people are actually going to get so angry, they're going to attack these men physically. They're going to get violent, just like that guy, that madman last week in, in Washington, D.C., or right out there in the suburbs, went after those Republicans during the baseball practice, got violent. What happened to him? Two Capitol Police, thank God for our heroes, shot and killed him before a massacre took place. In the same way, in the last days, people are gonna be so upset, they're gonna physically attack these guys, and the Lord's gonna take care of them with fire. This is another reason why I believe one of these guys is Elijah. Because in 2 Kings chapter one, you guys remember what happened in 2 Kings one? The king of Israel, apostate, wanted to arrest the man of God, Elijah, the prophet. And so he sends a captain of 50 men, and they go to arrest Elijah. And there's Elijah sitting up on a hill. And the captain says, if you're, uh, he says, man of God, come down. And Elijah sitting up on the hill says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down and consume you. Poof. <laughs> Gone. And the stubborn apostate king of Israel said, I'll send 50 more. Man of God, come down. If I'm a man of God, may fire come down and consume you. Poof. Now there's 100 dead. How? By fire. Why? Because they're coming against God's prophet. Not some fake, not some fraud, a true, authentic, spirit-filled man of God called Elijah. The king says, I'll send 50 more. This guy comes, he gets on his knees before Elijah, please don't send fire. And God speaks to Elijah's heart and says, go with him, don't be afraid. My point there is that just like God protected Elijah with fire, so he's gonna protect the two witnesses in the last days with fire. But not only is he gonna supernaturally protect them, they're gonna be able to do supernatural things. Look at verse six. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. How many days will they prophesy, church family? 1260, three and a half years, drought. Does that sound familiar? And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And so these guys are gonna be able to, to perform supernatural signs like turning water into blood by striking mankind with plagues, and by causing a three and a half year drought. Now we know that Elijah, in his day, ninth century BC, prayed fervently that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. Another reason why I think one of these guys is Elijah. But what's gonna happen when the 1,260 days are up? Look at verse seven. 
And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, we're gonna be introduced to him in chapter 13, he's the antichrist, that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and what? Kill them. Okay, so these two guys are now martyred for their faith. And their dead bodies, verse eight, will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? Help me out. Jerusalem. And so in the last seven years, Jerusalem is called Sodom. Why? Because of their perversion morally. In the last days, Jerusalem is called Egypt. Why? Because the people in Jerusalem are enslaved to sin. And so verse nine says, for three and a half days, okay, so the two witnesses, their bodies are in the streets of Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and the languages and the nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Let them rot in the road. That's how much the world hates these Bible-anointed preachers. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. This like becomes a national holiday. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And so let their bodies rot in the road and they're gonna see that these two guys are dead. How are they gonna, how's the whole world? You know, people from every tribe and nation and tongue, how are they gonna see their dead bodies? They're gonna see them with this thing right here. Global technology, cable news, smartphones. They're gonna see their bodies lying dead for three and a half days. They're gonna say, break open the champagne, let's party. No more conviction of sin. We can do whatever we wanna do. We can live however we wanna live. Nobody's gonna tell us what to do. Send gifts to one another. I think UPS is gonna be really busy when these guys die. And now pick up verse 11. But after, this is my two favorite verses right here. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters them. And they did what? Stood up. Can you imagine? On their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them through their mobile devices. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they, the two witnesses, the two faithful witnesses of God, went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And so they're dead for three and a half days, and everybody's watching them, right? Because I, I think that after the first frying, the first guy that tries to get violent with these guys, and he's burnt to a crisp, the cameras will be on these guys 24-7. And so people are looking at their dead bodies and then all of a sudden, they stand up. And I guarantee you, around the world, there'll be a simultaneous scream, ah, when they get up. And then as they're taken up, like Jesus was taken up in a cloud, they're taken up into heaven. And as everybody's staring at their screens, judgment comes, look at verse 13. And at that hour, that very hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city of Jerusalem fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified 
and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so they're staring at their screens. Cable news is showing this over and over. They're getting up, they're ascending. They're getting up. You know how cable news, they, news is funny to me. You know, um, we used to, when I was a kid, 6.30 to 7 o'clock, that's all we needed. Now there's gotta be 24 hours of news. And so what do you hear? Every single hour, it's the same thing over and over. And so they're gonna show this over and over, the two witnesses getting up, ascending into heaven, and then all of a sudden, everyone's freaking out, but then the earth begins to shake, the buildings begin to collapse, 7,000 people die, party is over. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna read verses 14 all the way through to 19, and then I have some really important comments on verse 19. So verse 14 says, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Okay, the second woe is the result of the sixth trumpet. The third woe is the result of the seventh trumpet. Speaking of which, verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he, Jesus, shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, they represent the church, who sat on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and finally <laughs> begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth, the inference there is the time has finally come. Now, very important, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And so after John hears this voice, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ, and Jesus is gonna reign forever and ever, then he looks, here's another vision, he sees heaven open, he sees the temple of God open, and he sees that. The Ark of the Covenant. Now this is so important because what I'm gonna share with you for the next two minutes and then we're done is the gospel. So if you're with me here, please say amen. amen. Under the old covenant, that was seen once a year by the high priest. The day of atonement, the high priest sacrifices the animal, drains the blood in a pan, takes the blood into the holy place, candelabra, on the left, table of showbread on the right, altar of incense in the middle, veil. He so carefully walks into the Holy of Holies and there is the Ark of the Covenant. Why is that piece of furniture so important under the Old Covenant? Because the Bible says that from in between the outstretched wings of the cherubim is where Moses heard the voice of God. The Holy of Holies is where God's presence was located. But you dare not go in there unless you got some blood. 
Why? Because Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so once a year, Day of Atonement, sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, that's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. What did that do? It made atonement a covering for sin. And God said, okay, I can, you can have my presence once again. That's the pages of the Old Testament. In the pages of the New Testament, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God, enters time and space through a virgin's womb. He wraps human flesh around his divinity, and he lives an absolutely perfect life, never sins one time. He has a three-year ministry of preaching and teaching, helping and healing, doing authentic miracles, loving people just for them, not for anything he can get out of them. That's agape love. And then at the end of it all, he willingly goes to a Roman cross and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world bleeds. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Three days later, he rises from the tomb. Now, here's the bad news of religion. It's when pastors, priests, religious people around the world stand before their congregations and they say, hey, just try harder. If you're good enough, God will let you in. That's not the gospel. What's the gospel? Here's the gospel. All, please say all. All, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a savior. His name is Jesus. And apart from the blood of Jesus, you'll never get into the presence of God. Here's your last point. The blood of Jesus has made atonement for sin, and we may now enter into the very presence of God. If you're happy about that, will you please let him know and thank him that we can enter into his presence through the blood. One way, one way, it's not Islam. It's not Buddhism. It's not any other world religion. It's not any cult. It's not by anything we can do. It's not even by going to church. One way into the presence of God is the blood of Jesus. That's it. Now the world will call us bigots and intolerant because we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father but through him. But we're not intolerant bigots. We're just teaching what the Bible says. If you try to go into God's presence with your sins, you're consumed. But here's the good news. God loves you in spite of your sin. As Aaron said, he loved that woman. She was taken in the act of adultery. He loved her. And the way he loved her is not like the other guys, so I can get something out of you. He just loved her for her. And he forgave her. And he did say, go and sin no more. And I think all of us should be motivated because of God's love to live for him. 
So I'm gonna ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here today and you're not sure of where you stand with God, I wanna say that he is here right now by his Holy Spirit and he wants a relationship with you. But it'll only happen when you come to him, the Father, through Jesus. If you'd like to do that, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer right now. And I want you to not just repeat words, I want you to use this prayer as a, your own prayer to the Father, okay? So you now, from your heart, are praying to the Father and say something like this. Dear Father, thank you for creating me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me. Jesus, thank you for paying for my sins and shedding your blood. I accept your payment. I accept your forgiveness. I receive you now as my Savior and Lord. Help me to go and sin no more by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Everybody, please look at me for a second. If, if you just prayed that prayer, um, will you just raise your hand just for like five seconds so that we can encourage you and put our hands together? Just raise your hand all up. All of you guys, all of you in the back. Yep, all of you guys, praise the Lord. Let's really encourage these people, guys, for their commitment to Christ today. That's such good news. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on, I'm new here, then knowing Christ.